Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. Monaco, home to one of the most popular races on the Formula One calendar, where viewers around the world are treated to scenes of harbors crammed with million-dollar yachts, winding streets outfitted with grandstands, and shots of the famous and wealthy drinking Prosecco. But this day is different. The cars line the grid, with the top 10 driver spots being determined by a lottery. Then it's lights out and away we go. As the race approaches the exhilarating final laps, there's movement in the crowd along the race wall. A sprinkler system douses the entire circuit in a torrent of water, forcing the drivers to quickly adjust. Fortunately, they've trained for the sudden artificial change in track conditions. As the winner crosses the finish line, the race officials ready the gold medal. This scenario could have been the modern state of Formula One if one man had made the changes he wanted to, to make the sport more entertaining. And unlike most people who have strong opinions about how to change the sport they love for the better, Bernie Ecclestone had both the resources and the power. Bernie Ecclestone, a name more commonly spit out than spoken. How did the son of a fisherman born into poverty come to be a billionaire? How does a man go from living in the northern English countryside to jet-setting with a string of new wives over the course of his entire life? What kind of person could have such an incredible hero's journey only to end up the villain in the eyes of the public? Well, today on Past Gas, we're going to tell you the story of the notorious and controversial James Humphrey, oh. Bernie Ecclestone. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. I'm next week, right? Uh, yeah. That's very similar to my story. Yeah. yeah. How, are, how are all your new wives doing? Um, we'll talk about it after. <laughs> Welcome to Past Gas, everybody. Off a little bit more than I could chew with all these wives. Yeah, all these new wives logging up my house. Welcome to back to the show. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined by my co-hosts, two of my best friends in the world. Uh, James Pumphrey, how you doing? I'm one of your best friends. I think so. Yeah. Uh, sure. You say that like every other week. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. You guys are two of my best friends. I'm. I'm distracted. I got some crud on my pants. Crud in your pants? Uh, no, not in. Okay. That would be a different. Okay. Just a little bit. I think it's toothpaste. Yeah. Yeah. I had a strong coffee. My new thing is I ordered the strongest coffee possible in the smallest cup available. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Which so is a quad espresso this shot. Is, this is four shots of espresso. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, with a, two dollops of the drug, and this is what I say to them. Yeah. And I dress well, and I smell good, and I <laughs> and I drive a, an expensive car, and they can see it from the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's what I say: I say, I need, I want four shots of espresso with a couple of dollops of the driest foam that you can manage. Yeah, stiff okay. peaks. 
Yeah. And they put oh, it. Super stiff it. peaks. Wow. And I got to say, there's two guys. One, if anybody at uh, Love Coffee Shop is listening, I, I love all of you guys. Uh, but one guy, the guy with the long hair. Yeah. That guy can make some dry foam. He makes yeah. the driest foam there. Driest foam there. Stiffest peaks. The, the <laughs> other guy, I think he's a little bit newer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually said today, he's like, I'm really working on my foam. He's working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he knows you have discerning taste. Mm-hmm. He want he, he wants to give you those peaks. Uh-huh. It's a little velveteen for sure. Mm. It's more, it's latte-ish. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if you guys have gathered yet, got but a I, used sheen. To, I used to be a barista. Did you really? Yeah. Oh. Um, and so like, I want to like tell him how to do it better. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was You're like, like, you oh, need more pressure. Well, it's just like, we'll just slam it on the on the counter a couple mm-hmm. times and also don't pour it scoop it you charming guy yeah do you want to hear my impression of the coffee that uh, second voice steamer? you hear is yeah. joe weber <laughs> wow pretty good right those are pretty good thank you yeah <laughs> <laughs> joe how, how are you doing how's your caffeine situation i'm great I, like? do, uh, I don't like to make more waste in the world but keurig's all we got in the office so Drinking some caribou coffee, taking me back to Minnesota, which I love now. I love Minnesota. <laughs> Don't believe him. All right. <laughs> uh, my name is Nolan Sykes, and today we're going to be talking about Bernie Ecclestone. What do you guys know about Bernie Ecclestone? Does that name mean anything to you? I know he's a sleazy dude. People don't like him very much. Yeah. I knew um, Elaine Prost, uh, you know, used his connection with Bernie to... Uh, make things go his way. If you want to win the game, you got to play the game. That's why they call him the professor. The professor, that's right. I think, and uh, I know that he got totally uh, screwed on Super Tuesday 2016. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, Different guy. Different Uh, guy, yeah. Okay. He wears mittens and he looks kind of grumpy, but he's just (laughs) trying to stay warm, right? That same guy? Okay, so let's get into Bernie Ecclestone. Bernie Ecclestone's outsized influence on Formula One spanned over 40 years. And while Bernie was, and still is, a great source of fodder for the tabloid media, thanks to his unfortunate and unpopular opinions on any number of controversial topics, (laughs) meaning (laughs) he's kind of a shithead, uh, many are totally unaware of just how far the man has come in his lifetime. Bernie Ecclestone was born on October 28, 1930 in St. Peter, South Elmum, a British hamlet with a current population of about 40 people. Oh, man. That's, That's a, like Moot, Wyoming. Smoot, sorry. Smoot. Weed, California. The son of a fisherman and his wife, obviously, <laughs> Bernie was born firmly into the poor working class, if not abject poverty. The family had very little as far as economic means, and so his parents had incredibly strict rules about excessive spending. Bernie's father was required to hand over his paycheck to his mother every payday to ensure that no money went unaccounted for. The strict oversight of the family's finances had a lasting effect on the young Bernie. He became adept at bartering and negotiating and got what he needed via means other than cash he didn't have. For example, as a child, Bernie would deliver messages from nearby station GIs to their local girlfriends in exchange for candy. (laughs) (laughs) He should have asked for money. Yeah. (laughs) You can buy candy with money, but you can also buy other stuff. You can. So if your boss is like, hey, I'll pay you in candy, (laughs) it might sound sweet, pun intended, but money's better. Bernie naturally gravitated towards work at a young age, delivering newspapers and vegetables and generally taking any work that was available. He was a terrible student, except in one subject, math. 
and later quit school at 16 to work as an assistant in a chemical lab at the local gas works, testing gas purity. I love, like, back in the day how you could drop out of high school to go be a scientist. <laughs> yeah. <It's crazy. laughs> Despite not officially graduating, he did go on to briefly study physics and chemistry at Woolwich Polytechnic, the now-named University of Greenwich. Was he painting candy there? <laughs> or fish? No, Fish and vegetables. But Bernie knew he wasn't built for the academic world. His instincts to hustle and grind were well-established by then, and he even had a new love to focus on, motorcycles. While working for the gas company, he had spent his free time looking through the classifieds for motorcycles and motorcycle parts he could buy and resell, and eventually developed a reputation as a reputable dealer. Dude, this guy's Jeremiah. He's a freaking <laughs> scientist motorcycle guy. Yeah. <laughs> Due to his proximity to Brands Hatch, a famous racing circuit, Bernie also began to develop an interest in motorsport. In 1949, when he was 19, he raced for the first time in the 500cc Formula 3 series. And two years later, in 1951, at age 21, he purchased a 500cc Cooper Mark V as his car of choice for the series. And as you might expect, he placed in a few races and crashed in a few as well. I can relate. <laughs> in one of these races, Bernie's crash ejected him from the cockpit and landed him in the parking lot. Shut up. No way. No way. I mean, I guess it depends on how close he was probably to the parking pretty, lot. Probably pretty close to the parking lot. And he uh, didn't get hurt? Well, I mean, probably. The crash jarred him enough that it was his last race as a driver. Yeah. I mean, you know what this feels like, Nolan. You went off track a couple times, yeah. and uh, it definitely affects you. Totally. I mean, our your crash was worse than mine in our Subarus, but, like, it's that... For those first couple videos were going to the track, I was uh -huh. like, I got this. Yeah. This is sick. I, uh -huh. Nothing can go wrong. And then you have that first real spin where you go off track and dirt's flying everywhere. And yeah. like, you're like, I could flip right now. Uh huh. Yeah. That, I could flip right now. I could hurt myself. Yeah. I had Jeremiah in the car with me. I was like, dude, if I hurt Jeremiah, I'm that I'm going to feel so awful. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like, it's not our car. Yeah. And just all the it's work. It's really that we expensive. Put in. We put a lot of work into it. We're trying to make a video. Like, it really, like, affected me quite yeah. a bit like i like didn't drive for the next couple of videos i definitely had like a ricky bobby syndrome but yeah. on the other hand though like that's great tv it is <laughs> it's good content yeah you should check out uh high low on yeah. the, our youtube channel and then you have you have a redemption arc too uh -huh. yeah i do like, <laughs> uh in the finale spoiler alert i do start driving again and uh i fall back in love uh, but what you're talking about is like, yeah, you work on a corner, you work on a corner, you're like, I got it, I got it, I got it. Because so much of it is like, I, I called out that like, we used to just like film talking videos in a hallway and now being brave is part of our <laughs> job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't know how that happens. It's yeah. like, uh, oh, being not as brave as I could be could be a career limiting thing. Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> I'm working on my bravery. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go fight a bear next week. Yeah, to I mean, train my Jonesing yeah. uh, over Christmas break. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bernie's aptitude for buying and reselling motorcycles and parts at a significant profit led to a job at a motorcycle dealership in Bexley Heath Shopping Center. Ooh. It didn't take long for Bernie to become locally known as both a great businessman and the brains behind what became the best showroom in the area. He leveraged his reputation across the street to Compton and Fuller, the area's premier car dealership. I went from two wheels to four. That's moving up, baby. 
More wheels, more problems. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah, dude. On your hog. That's why you wheelie everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Though Bernie immediately tried to wrangle a partnership, he settled for renting out a portion of the showroom and giving Compton part of his profits. Do you know what the uh, dollar stores in England are called? Penny pen, shops. Pen, no, they're called pen, pence places. This pen is palace. a real. It's a real chain called Pound Town. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Pound Town, nice. Soon enough, Bernie's motorcycle business was outselling Compton's car business. Bernie ended up buying out Fred Compton's partner, Derek Fuller, and Compton and Fuller became Compton and Ecclestone. Bernie's showrooms became his signature, described as both immaculate and welcoming. That's how people describe me. <laughs> Thanks to their growing business, Bernie was finally making very real money and investing that money into real estate. Yes, that's what you do. That's how you get rich. He bought out competitors and turned Compton and Ecclestone into a franchise. Bernie also convinced Compton to become involved in racing as a way of expanding the dealership's brand. And soon, Compton and Ecclestone became known throughout the south of England. Compton's a cool name. Dude. Yeah. Dude. Joey Compton? Yeah. Nolan Compton is not as cool? That doesn't work as well. <laughs> Around this time, Bernie began dressing and acting the part of a businessman on the rise. He started hanging out with some very well-known people whose names mean very little today. Um, example, Lord Beaverbrook. <laughs> oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> uh, he, Lord Beaverbrook was the Kendall Jenner of South England back then. Yeah. As Bernie became part of the moneyed class, he gained a reputation as a daring gambler at Crockford's, a casino in London populated by the wealthy and famous. While gambling may seem counterintuitive to Bernie's ethos, it may have been a calculated investment as it allowed his reputation to grow among those he wished to be friendly with and conveyed his take-no-prisoners attitude that he would later become known for. Hey, mate, you going to Crockford's later? I heard uh, Lord Beaverbrook's going to be there. Lord Beaverbrook's. So we got a guy who came from nothing, and now he's, like, making a name for himself, uh -huh. you know? And I he's feel hungry. Like, he's like got Kylie that. Jenner. Yeah, like Kylie Jenner, self-made, totally. Self-made. Um, <laughs> uh, guys? But, like, I, th I feel like car dealers especially, like, that takes such... To be successful and have longevity in that industry takes such a specific mindset. Yeah, grind set. Yeah, grind set. Some would say. Like, hustle, hustle core. It takes a certain kind of <laughs> ego to stay in that business. Yeah. I bet I could sell the sh crap out of a car. You think so? Well, I think, kinda... dude, if I were a car salesman, my name would be on that leaderboard. <laughs> I think you could sell Porsches. Dude, yeah, I could the sell Porsches for sure. Yeah. Definitely luxury sports cars are what I'd probably sell the best. Uh, I'd have a real target on my back from the other salesman. Let's just say that. <laughs> new guy starts to point at me. I'm I'm talking to a customer. Yeah, he's like, "That's the guy to beat." And you're drinking coffee because coffee's for closers. Coffee's for closers, and it's in the tiniest little cup. <laughs> you don't get stiff foam by not selling Porsches, new guy. <laughs> Having established himself economically and socially, Bernie purchased two chassis from the disbanded Conant F1 team and became a manager of an up-and-coming driver named Stuart Lewis Evans. One year later, Lewis Evans would perish in a fiery crash at the 1958 Moroccan Grand Prix. Moroccan Grand Prix? Bernie did not take his driver's death lightly and retired yet again from racing. However, he couldn't stay away for long. Friends introduced him to Jochen Rint, a driver for the 1970 Lotus Formula 2 team. 
and Bernie became his manager and partial owner of the team. Tragically, Rint died at the Monza circuit in Italy that same year and was posthumously crowned that year's world champion. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine if, like, our job was like that? Like, uh, yeah. we hired uh, Jeremiah to be a host, and it's like, oh, Jeremiah died. Yeah. And, like, Justin comes on, and it's like, oh, no, Justin died. Yep. That'd be sad. That'd yeah. be extremely sad. It'd be a nightmare for HR. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just say that. Let's just say that. The following year in 19- The lead singer of uh, Bad Brains? Yeah. Mm-hmm. His name's HR. Oh. <laughs> the following year in 1971, Bernie was approached by Ron Taranak, the owner of the Brabham F1 team. Taranak was looking for a partner, but Bernie was fairly past the time of partnerships. He offered Taranak 100,000 pounds in 22, about $1.8 million in today's money, for the entire team, and Taranak accepted but he chose to stay on as a designer and run the factory. That's fun. He Dang, just... dude. Car dealer gets into racing. Now he has an F1 team. Yeah. I mean, a couple of people had to die along the way. I mean, that it wasn't his fault. <laughs> it's not gotta, like he didn't murder them. Got to crack no, a few eggs to make an omelet. Yeah. Bernie brought in consultants to help with design until Tarnak left entirely the following year, which gave Bernie total control of the team. This would be another hallmark of the Hustlers' negotiation tactics. Bernie immediately scrapped the Brabham team's highly lucrative customer car production arm, arguing that if the team was to compete, the majority of its resources must be focused on the racing division. That seems kind of dumb to me. You got to have money coming in. Got to have a but tube of money coming it's in. It's the opposite of what uh, Enzo Ferrari did. Right. Bernie built a highly cost-effective and competitive team and brought in incredible talent like drivers Nicky Lauda and Nelson Piquet. However... Bernie's cost-effectiveness had its downside. Though PK stuck with the team for seven years and won two championships for Bernie, he left due to pay disagreements. He then went on to Williams, where he won his third world championship. Gordon Murray, the chief designer for Brabham, would also leave Brabham with the same complaint after 12 years. I'm gonna go make me own car. Yeah. <laughs> Gordon Murray is the same guy who would go on to design the McLaren F1. Yeah. Uh, and he also has that new car coming out with a like T50. a... T50. 50 with a turbine engine on the back to suck it to the ground. Whenever we talk about this era, you know, like, uh, you know, in America, the, I, we always imagine like Carol Shelby walks into a bar and like, mm-hmm. like Lee Iacocca's sitting there. And he's like, you so-and-so. I, yeah. they, I guess they just let anyone in here. <laughs> yeah. like, they just like all Ken Watch Miles out for this there. guy. They all run into each other. Uh, it seems like in Europe it was similar like gordon murray and bernie ecclestein like knew each other yeah. and, like but they walk into a pub and they'd be like oh look at this sword yeah. let, they'll just let any sword in here <laughs> yeah. and then they're like oh martha don't serve this guy he's <laughs> kind of sixes and sevens okay you nip it they're in europe they kiss on their cheeks yeah they're much more comfortable with their sexuality we'll be right back with more of this story but first a word from our sponsors angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home it can be really hard to maintain it's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In 1974, Bernie joined Frank Williams, Lotus's Colin Chapman, McLaren's Teddy Mayer, Ken Tyrell, and March team owner and lawyer Max Mosley in mm. forming the Formula One Constructors Association, or FOCA. FOCA. FOCA was a trade union created to represent the interests of privately owned teams, usually against race organizers and later manufacturer-owned or supported teams. Basically, if you weren't Ferrari, we know, you were part of FOCA. True to his tendency to climb upwards, by 1978, Bernie was FOCA's chief executive, and alongside Max Mosley, Bernie became a truly formidable voice in F1. As he used his position in FOCA to wage war with the Federation Internationale du Sport Automobile, or FISA the governing body of international motorsports. The acronyms are flying now. So a brief clarification uh, for all you guys. FISA was responsible for establishing and enforcing race rules and regulations in addition to funding the commercial elements of the sport. So money for racing in Formula One flowed to the teams through FISA, an organization that had... um, Let's just say a fondness for factory-backed teams. Teams like Ferrari, Renault, and uh, Alfa Romeo. <laughs> Meanwhile, the members of FOCA, the 15 teams aside from those big three factory teams, were barely seeing a trickle, a barely even a little tinkle, a little dribble, 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 tibbly, tib- tibble of that cash. Okay. They were getting the wet peaks. Yeah, there that was wet foam. Very velveteen foam. Yeah. Meanwhile, Enzo Ferrari's sipping the driest foam you've literally ever seen. He's got to drink his coffee with a fork. <laughs> <laughs> you might be wondering where the FIA, the Federation Internationale de l'Automobile, uh, is in all of this. FISA was a subcommittee of the FIA, but FISA did all the tangible organizing and labor. Uh, In that era, the European business model was vastly different than it is today. The people heading the FIA were rich uh, and and created FISA to do the actual work, thereby creating a layer of cost without any added value. Hmm. Bernie was a successful businessman with an acute sensitivity about money being wasted, and he recognized this. He realized that there was no justifiable way the FIA could rationalize this layer of cost and control in the long term. So he did what all of us disruptors do. He set out to break it. Ooh. The president of FISA, Jean-Marie Balestre, was a f- major focus of Bernie's. That Bo- sounds so soft. Balestre. Jean-Marie Balestre. 
Both he and Max Mosley were intensely critical of Balestra's lifestyle as he traveled in profound luxury and comped tickets for his friends at the expense of the F1 teams. Can you imagine if my name was just John Mary? You guys had to call me John Mary all the time? I wish my name was uh, Jean Basquiat Pumphrey. It still can be. John James Basquiat Reptile. <laughs> While this expense would have been aggravating enough, Foca believed that Balestra penalized British cars unnecessarily. For example, in 1978, Lotus produced the Lotus 79 wing car, which featured skirts down the side of the chassis that generated ground effect underneath the car. It was a championship winner that inspired everyone, especially the Foca teams on the grid. But by 1981, Balestra was banning skirts on cars, the very element that the British teams were winning with. This was a move that provocatively favored the big three factory teams and their turbo engines, a component the Foca teams didn't have, oh. probably because of the increased cost. This guy's a, kind of a crook, too. But it's, ooh, I, it's just crooks I do all the not down, like dude. a Zwingkata. <laughs> Bernie's war with FISA was long and led to a period of confusion in Formula One. Ultimately, he wanted more control and revenue for the teams, and his plan seemed to be that he would either control the sport or ruin it by exploiting every loophole in the rulebook. Meanwhile, FISA and Balestra wanted to maintain the status quo by appeasing the large manufacturers. I mean, it's a dynamic as old as... Yeah. Have you seen the FIFA documentary? It's the same same yeah. crap. Look, when it's all political. Yeah, I mean, FIFA know. and the FIA are very similar. That's why they call uh, football the F1 of feet. They do. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> but you use your feet to drive a car, too. Oh, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> so Bernie wasn't having it. He did not like the politics. He would go on to exploit numerous loopholes in the regulations, as discovered by legal advisor Max Mosley. FOCA teams would drive in unsanctioned races and skip press conferences, and then FISA would fine FOCA teams for not appearing in said press conferences. It wasn't long before everything boiled over. Before the 1982 Brazilian Grand Prix, the FOCA teams found a loophole in the weighing procedure. This was critical because, as we mentioned before, the large factory teams were using expensive turbocharged engines, while the FOCA teams were not. The rules stated that all cars needed to be weighed with all coolants and lubricants on board, but there was nothing that said those same liquids needed to be in the cars at the end of the race. Oh. So... The FOCA team showed up to the race with water-cooled brakes with large tanks of water on board. The water <laughs> was smoky, smoky eunuch stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the water was then immediately dispersed at the beginning of the race, allowing the teams to compete well under the minimum weight limit. The tanks were then refilled in later pit stops so that they were still full after the race. The top two finishers, Nelson Piquet with Brabham and Keke Rosberg with Williams, were driving cars with water-cooled brakes, while the third... Alan Prost with Renault was not. Prost immediately protested. And, oh, no way. And PK and Rosberg were disqualified. Oh. Famously, all of the FOCA teams later boycotted the 1982 San Marino Grand Prix in response to the disqualifications. I think that was the one that there was like seven cars racing in it or something, right? Mm. Dude, that would be, be cool. Yeah. Uh, you know what I would boycott? Prost's birthday party. Yeah. <laughs> Are you coming to my birthday party? Uh, I'm busy that night. Oh, really? Because uh, I overheard you talk to uh, Nelson Piquet. He said you uh, opened that tonight. Uh, it filled up. 
it's my family does Thanksgiving on our own day. <laughs> <laughs> These antics were not simply an attempt to win races, though that was certainly important. What Bernie and Mosley were attempting to do was illuminate the continuing bias of FISA against the smaller FOCA teams. Bernie's issues didn't end there. He also wanted to change the disbursement of revenue from the races that weighed heavily in favor of the large European factories, the manufacturer-supported teams. Yeah, there's no replacement for, for disbursement. That's right. <laughs> By forcing the focus away from the dominance of teams like Ferrari onto the FOCA teams, he was building a case for a more competitive sport. Bernie also appeared to be the only man in the sport who spoke for multiple teams while the others stood alone. Bernie's crusade against Balestra and FISA was relentless and even got illegal by today's standards. He didn't just have the drivers boycott important races. He spied on FISA officials and used that information to leverage his position. He had the Spanish police march Balestra's men out of a race at gunpoint. And he generally embarrassed the pretentious and proud Balestra by making the races look poorly executed and mismanaged. Wow. Balestra, for his part, referred to Bernie as a madman. That's like if I were to call the cops on uh, any of our unregistered cars <laughs> and have hey, them tow and then have to just come in on Monday and work with you guys again. <laughs> like, hey, Joe. All this brinkmanship led to the Concord Agreement in 1981, an event where Bernie cemented his power. FISA agreed to more evenly distribute earnings from the races, but the real coup was that Bernie and Max Mosley would be added to FISA to focus on the commercial side of the sport. And thus, Bernie was in charge of negotiating the profoundly lucrative TV rights for Formula One. Man, this guy's playing 5D chess. He really is. In 1988, Bernie decided to move on from managing Brabham. He sold the team to Swiss businessman Joachim Luthi for a cool $5 million, which is 12 and a half mil today. Dang. There's so many words, like names in the racing world that sound like you're hawking up a loogie. Joachim <laughs> <laughs> Rent. Yochen. Yochen rent. I'm going to share a GoFundMe uh, if you guys can contribute anything you can. My um, old friend from college has Yochen Lunti. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough one. How do you even get that? Like, that's, I thought that was eradicated. Mm, you don't want to know. You get bit by a nutrium in uh, oh, Florida. Yeah, you got to chug a lot of river water. There's a water. rare nudibranch. In the reefs of uh, off the coast of Australia, yeah, and it stings you, and it uh, degrades. And then seven your nervous, years later, yeah, your nervous system starts to break down. Mm -hmm. Nudibranch, small undersea slug. Nice, good pull, dude. I thought my nutrium drop was uh... both delicious. <laughs> After cementing his position, Bernie created the Formula One Promotions and Administration, or FOPA. <laughs> what? Like, Come on! Like no. that bump that you have, yeah, fat on your stomach. <laughs> Fopa. Fopa. <laughs> to negotiate the TV rights. Fopa. Don't wear high waisted pants. <laughs> After FISA and FIA had a baby, they had a huge Fopa. <laughs> Fopa. The contract was 47% to the teams, 30% to FISA, and 23% to. Opa, or if you prefer, Bernie. 
FOPA would front all the prize money for the races. While the TV rights would bounce around over the years, Bernie would eventually negotiate himself into controlling the TV rights for an annual payment. By 1990, FOPA had revenues of just $12.5 million. But by 1996, it had increased to $127.6 million. Wow, wow, wow. And to give you an idea of Bernie's value that year, his salary as an executive was $83.7 million a year. Jeez. That's a lot for now. Yeah, dude. That's like almost half of what I make. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, he was officially the world's highest paid executive. Not bad for a son of a fisherman. Not bad for a fisherman's son. (laughs) Not fish for a son of a fish. (laughs) The thing is, this would all prove to be a good thing for the sport, Hmm. right? Despite what many think of him, Bernie was a true visionary and saw that he could make a considerable amount of money for the sport by dealing directly with networks rather than selling an overall deal to a worldwide distributor. Again, eliminate the middleman. Mm -hmm. While this created a massive amount of work, it also allowed him to leverage the best value from each smaller deal. Other sports would follow this model in years to come, but they would have to wait for their very long-term deals to expire first. As Bernie moved into a position of power, he populated the organization with structure of F1 with friends like Max Mosley and cemented his standing for the next 40 years. Some of his former cohorts in FOCA felt a little betrayed since the man they had trusted to advocate for their interest within F1 was now in charge of F1. Oh, so he stepped on your neck? You saw the guy stepping on everyone's neck and you thought he was going to be your friend? I I never thought he'd step on my neck. (laughs) This, as should now be apparent, would not cause Bernie to lose any sleep. Dude doesn't give a F. Guess how many Fs he has to give? Zero. He's got a lot of money, but not a lot of Fs. In fact, he has no Fs, not a single F to give. His plans and business decisions were not usually apparent, nor was he one to share his thoughts with others. Hence the double meaning nickname he was given by employees. Mr. E. Mr. E. Oh, Mr. E. Mystery. Hell yeah, dude. That's like M. Night Shyamalan character, man. <laughs> yeah, I did as I didn't even get it until I had said it. Yeah, I didn't. I said it and I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that Mater from Cars. He's a tow truck, tow yeah. Mater. <laughs> I also didn't get until like two months ago that Rotten Tomatoes is named because like that's what they used to throw at people in place. Yeah, if they don't like a uh, performer, guys, I think I might be dumb. <laughs> Imagine like going to a play or something. And just taking a rotten tomato just in case. (laughs) Just in case this thing sucks. I got a bunch of rotten tomatoes to throw at people. And if it doesn't, you're just like, you got a rotten tomato in your bag. Hey, man. Yeah, you're just like, you're like, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The trash cans are just full of tomatoes. (laughs) Guys, the reviews are in. (laughs) If this should tell you anything, it's just a trash can full of tomatoes. Uh, Many of those employees have wondered why Bernie donated a million pounds to the Labour Party in 1997 until F1 received an exemption from the UK's 1997 ban (laughs) on tobacco sponsorships in the sport. Hmm. The Labour Party in England is a political party. They're like the Democrats. 
I like that they just still fist fight. I wish Congress would. Oh yeah, they still up. fist fight. I think so. I think that's how they vote. <laughs> <laughs> now, while the Labor Party had to eventually succumb to public outcry and return the donation, uh, it was only after the exemption was already done. Bernie's imprint, uh, <laughs> dude. That's best case scenario for Bernie. He's like, oh, thank you for my money. I bet he leaked the pub. I bet he was in charge of public outcry. Bernie's imprint on F1 is so wide-reaching that there's no way to talk about the growth of the sport without also talking about Bernie. His brilliance was in creating chaos and sowing discontent until he was firmly in charge, and then, as he did with his showrooms at the beginning of his career, refine and polish the parts until it was an immaculate presentation of the product. It's like the Joker of F1. Yeah, dude, he's cool. If he was a Batman villain, I'd call him the Tinkerer. Not Mr. E? Oh, I'd call him Mr. E, yeah. (laughs) One journalist posited that you can watch Bernie's imprint on the sport by looking at the evolution of the pit crews over his reign. From oil-stained cigarette-smoking racers throwing anything they can think of at the cars to an elite, polished, almost surgical pit stop uh, that you can see today. Everyone wears helmets, even the guy that never moves away from his computer. Yeah, and... We can't even tell if they're smoking because they got them helmets on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie also had ideas about how to make F1 more entertaining. Aside from the lottery-style grid position, sprinkler systems, and medals we mentioned in the opening, Bernie also thought that crashes were not as theatrical as oh they could God. be. Uh, he's like Vince McMahon. He proposed that after a crash, audience-blocking tarps should be constructed so when the driver was taken to a hospital, the crowd wouldn't know the driver's condition. Bernie also proposed a wall lining the course to punish careless driving. He also thought it might be, he also thought it might be interesting for drivers to be allowed to use a shortcut once per race. Okay, that's something that, that Rallycross does. Yeah, Rally does, does it. And I like it you take yeah. the joker lap it's either a longer or shorter route mm-hmm. around the track and it, it's yeah it adds like a whole entire uh, another level of uh strategy mm. yeah that's the other thing is like f1 teams are also so like analytical now that like yeah. it would i think it would be fun it, the drama might be just like well you know there would be like some kind of weird out. loophole they yeah. would exploit it and but it then it would get banned yeah i like it but i love this uh wall that Punishes people. <laughs> Tell me more about this wall. Yeah, I'm building a punishment wall at my new house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's what you had me help you with? I was yeah. wondering what that was all about. Yeah. You asked if I knew a shackle expert? Yeah. I found one. Thank you. <laughs> He's great. I found him on Angie's list. Yeah. So, um, if anyone out there uh, is a punishment wall enthusiast like me, I'm, oh, uh, I'm, you're going to get some DMs. I, I'm currently Let me looking, tell you. I'm looking for a spike guy oh you're gonna get some spike guys for sure. <laughs> so hit me up about punishment walls oh at uh mrs harry styles at gmail.com or past gas at donutmedia.com but bernie's time as f1 supremo came to an abrupt end in 2017 when f1 was acquired entirely by liberty media in a brutal karate kid style takeover While Liberty initially kept Bernie on briefly and in an advisory role, their vision to take the sport into the internet age, more than 10 years after it should have been taken into that age, Mm -hmm. um, 
That stuff conflicted with Bernie's less technologically savvy business sense. While Bernie had made F1 insanely lucrative, there were just too many ignored revenue streams that were being ignored. Doobie, I mean, that's kind of the thing is like we talked about the cigarette smoking, like the pit crews going from yeah. like ragtag guys to like being all in uniforms and everything. Uh-huh. I mean, that also extended to the Internet presence as well as like before 2017, like racers presence on social media was so different to what it is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Bernie didn't allow it like he didn't want the drivers to have any personalities online. He didn't want there to be any sort of like lens behind the scenes that social media could offer. You know, he wanted it to be this pristine product. And that was it. No, no cracks in the in the armor, right? which is not what the public wants these days. No, the pu- I mean, not only do we want to see what they have to say, not only do we want to see what the drivers have to say about like the race, we want uh, architectural digest to show me their bed. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're totally right. I want to so, see everything. Yeah. While Bernie did help grow the sport and like. In immense way, he also held it back in many ways. For, For sure, sure. Yeah. I don't want a pristine product. I want to know Courtney Kardashian's yeah. favorite salad. I want to see Bodice's butt ass. You oh yeah. What I'm <laughs> oh, yeah. and we got a lot of butt ass for yeah. sure. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. While Bernie is undeniably a shrewd businessman, his public persona has been defined by more than his control of F1. His seemingly total inability to think before speaking into a microphone is very well documented. I can't relate. (laughs) One would think that a Google search of his name would return page upon page of F1 history, but this is not the case. Instead, it's a veritable greatest hits of comments made to the media. 2005, regarding Danica Patrick's fourth place finish in the Indy 500. great. Can't wait for this one. You know, I've got one of those wonderful ideas. Women should be dressed in white like all the other domestic appliances. <laughs> in 2005, a rich guy has white appliances. Gotta have stainless steel. Gotta have stainless steel. Anyway, two, in Gotta 2000. Get that Viking train burn. Yeah. In 2009. A lot of ways, terrible to say this, I suppose, but apart from the fact that Hitler got taken away and persuaded to do things that I have no idea whether he wanted to do or not. He was, in the way that he could command a lot of people, able to get things done. Yeah, because, you know, Hitler, classic victim of circumstance. (laughs) In 2020, regarding Lewis Hamilton's activism following the murder of George Floyd, quote. (laughs) Say it. (laughs) Uh, uh, Pass gas, me, James Humphrey, Nolan Sykes, uh, Joe Weber, Christina, uh, maybe Gavin. Do not agree with any of these. (laughs) <laughs> statements. I thought you were trying to preemptively end the, <laughs> the recording. Uh, okay. Go ahead. This is Bernie. This is Bernie Ecclestone. Bernie Ecclestone actually said yeah. this. Two years in, ago. Yeah, two years ago. In lots of cases, black people are more racist than what white people are. Oh, man. <laughs> and then this year, regarding Vladimir Putin after his invasion of Ukraine, quote, Bernie Ecclestone said this about Putin. I'd still take a bullet for him. I'd rather it didn't hurt, but I would still take a bullet. He's a first-class person. That's just Jesus. a fundamental misunderstanding of how bullets work. Yeah, <laughs> they're made to it'll hurt. 
definitely hurt. Yeah. <laughs> without getting lost in the weeds. <laughs> without getting no, it lost. It can't be more than a shot. A, a flu well, shot. I hope this is one of them bullets that don't hurt. <laughs> it really kind of like removes a lot of the uh, the weight of the statement. It's yeah. Like, I'll take a bullet for you as long as it didn't hurt. It yeah. didn't look bad to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Hey, um, guys. I'd take a nap for either of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Without getting lost in the weeds of these comments, and there are a lot more, trust us, the vast majority of his non-F1 related press are articles where he doubles down on the offensive comment and then tries to clarify what he really meant, which is almost always makes things worse, Yeah, and then apologizes that people misunderstood his intentions, which gaslights every reader of the original <laughs> piece. It's the classic, like, I'm was, sorry if you got offended. Yeah. Just just apologize. I'm sorry if you got offended, but okay, fine. Maybe all women should wear stainless steel <laughs> like kitchen appliances. <laughs> Bernie's dealing with the press are a master class in being terrible at interviews, and you'd kind of assume that he'd get good at it after so many decades yeah, of being yeah. involved in the sport. It could be argued that any press is good press, but Bernie's almost surgical precision in grafting his foot with his mouth when there's a microphone nearby truly tests that aphorism. Bernie's public missteps are not contained to just media commentary. In 2014, Bernie paid $100 million to the German courts to end a bribery trial where he was accused of trying to bribe a banker to ensure a company he owned was able to purchase a stake in F1. How the bribery he was accused of is morally different from paying a court to end a trial is still unclear. <laughs> Years before, yeah. <laughs> Years before, in 2008... Because the government gets the money. Yeah. Yeah. Years before, in 2008, he paid 10 million pounds, which in today's money, about $15.8 million, after avoiding paying almost $1.2 billion in taxes to the UK government, a deal that defies both logic and basic <laughs> economics. In 2022, he accidentally brought a gun onto a private plane, an oversight that also defies logic. He is currently awaiting trial in the UK as well for illegally hiding 400 million pounds Jeez. in a trust. This guy loves not paying taxes. He owed 1.2 billion dollars in yeah. taxes, and then How paid. How much is this guy making? But then he only paid 10, 10 million pounds. Yeah. to avoid doing that. I mean, that's smart. That's a good deal. He got yeah. a good deal. Why am I paying taxes? Bernie's romantic life is fairly par for the course in terms of billionaires. Here we go. In 1984. Now it's about to get saucy. Oh, man. Uh, in 1984, after one marriage and another long-term relationship, he married Yugoslavian model uh, Slavica Radic, who at 23 was likely able to keep up with the then 51-year-old Bernie. They remained married for 23 years and had two wow. children. After divorcing in 2009. parents. Oh. Bernie remarried in 2012 to a woman 46 years younger than him. In 2020, Bernie, then almost 90 years old, welcomed his son into the world. Bernie is currently a father, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. Oh, God. My dad's 90. Well, I mean, if, you, if you're great-grandfather and a you're child. still alive, yeah. then you... Are a father, yeah, yeah. a grandfather, and a great grandfather. You can be all those things. That's worded weirdly. No, but you have he to be all those things. Yeah. He's, a, he's a new father. He's a yes. new father, yeah. as well as being both those two. I got to say, guys, I don't want to offend anybody or cut out any of our audience. I don't even want to look at people 46 years older than me. <laughs> makes me want to vom. <laughs> vom. Makes me want to vom. <laughs> Straight up want to vom, dude. <laughs> <laughs>
While F1 exploded in popularity under Bernie's oversight, the growth of the sport's popularity in the time since his departure gives a great deal of insight into Bernie's blind spots. After a complete overhaul of every aspect of the aesthetic side of the brand, including its logo, the new owners also brought F1 into the internet age. Like Lawnmower Man. F1 didn't post its first official race footage to its YouTube channel until 2014, almost 10 years after YouTube was launched. We were already putting almost, dude, that is less than a year before we posted our first YouTube video. (laughs) My God. When Bernie left, the official F1 YouTube page had only about 275,000 subscribers as opposed to its current total of about 8.48 million uh, at the time of this recording, which is late 2022. Uh, I'll, uh, you know, we'll probably hit that next year. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Speaking of Donut and F1, we, are, we have another podcast called DRS, the Donut Racing Show. That's right. It's hosted by Nolan. That's right. And... Alanis King and Elizabeth Blackstock, uh, we are kind of on a little hiatus right now because it's the offseason, but we're going to start recording early next year. We have a new driver's guide for the 2023 season out right now. You can go listen to that right after this is over. Go do that. be a nice little double feature. little double feature. Yes. Listen to like a broad F1 uh, episode and then a more specific modern F1 episode. It's like uh, a time jump. Yeah. It's like the fifth season of Mad Men. And you get a double dose of Nolan. Yeah. Yeah. Two scoop. Give me two scoops of Nolan this morning. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of fiber. <laughs> <laughs> that difference in YouTube subscribers illuminates a much larger issue Bernie was ill-equipped to deal with. His reign allowed him almost total control, which desiccated the fan base, many of whom could no longer watch races after streaming became king. While Bernie focused on his beloved TV broadcast rights, he missed out on the most important scaling option available to any executive looking to broadcast. Streaming platforms. (laughs) Liberty Media took almost no time in putting F1 fully on social media while also creating F1 TV for fans to stream races directly from F1. They also created a profoundly important partnership with Netflix in a little show called the Drive to Survive series that not only showcases the sport in heretofore unseen areas of an F1 race, but it also teaches a new generation what F1 is. Uh, Formula One's current resurgence is arguably not a testament to Bernie's successes, but rather his failures. Bernie's notoriety and media coverage grew, not coincidentally, in tandem with the explosion in the worldwide popularity of Formula One. He was dubbed the F1 Supremo by news and tabloids alike due to both his position as its chief executive and his relentless and constant negotiating on behalf of maintaining and enlarging his control of the sport and its future. He also built the organization into a powerhouse through bitter negotiation, borderline cheating, and multiple illegal acts, as well as a lot of tax evasion. Yet... He stands today as a multi-billionaire whose empire continues to grow, probably because he doesn't pay taxes. It's complicated to love a sport and loathe one of its chief architects. Perhaps most F1 fans are able to separate the man from the mission and don't tie Bernie's toxic personality and greed to the sport. However, 
This allows Bernie's worst traits to fester long after his departure. The problem with Bernie isn't what he did to turn F1 into a lucrative powerhouse. It's what he created within F1 that will continue to haunt the sport. In the words of Lewis Hamilton, quote, It makes complete sense to me now that nothing was said or done to make our sport more diverse or to address the racial abuse I received throughout my career. If someone who has the run of the sport for decades has such a lack of understanding of the deep-rooted issues we as black people deal with every day, how can we expect all the people who work under him to understand? It starts at the top. Go off, King. Yeah, love you, Lewis Hamilton. Love you, Lewis. Let's go. Wow, yeah. Um, complicated guy. There's not a lot of people in this world who I would want to be a flatmate with. <laughs> Lewis Hamilton's right up there. <laughs> we could get a cool pad in Morocco. In Morocco? Yeah. You know, Monaco, Monaco, Monaco. <laughs> both, both of both. Well, both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he's one of those roommates that's never there, and you're like, "Wow, this is the best situation." Yeah, but when he is there, it's like fun. Yeah, whoa, Lewis, Lewis. Sorry, I'm mate. making dinner tonight, mate. I'm knacking. <laughs> yeah, I hope you. I hope you're hungry because I'm making dinner tonight, mate. I picked up this special recipe in Lisbon. <laughs> <laughs> he would do that. Yeah, Toto's coming over. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Hello, James. <laughs> <laughs> Toto, you son of a oh, gun. Yo. I guess I'll just let anybody in here. Ah, kill me, <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we got some fan mail this week. This week it's from Brent. Hey, Brent. Hey, guys, I'm a big fan of the show, and past gas has become my must-listen-to podcast every week. Well, thank you very much, Brent. On the Leaded Gas episode, you may have missed one big piece of the story. Leaded gas is still being used in piston-powered airplanes today. We talked about that. Yeah, there have been proposals to do away with it, but I think in this case, the FAA greater than sign, the EPA. Most average gas is 100 octane, which is certainly possible without lead, like unleaded race gas. Uh, please keep on producing great content. Brent. Thank you, Brent. Thank you, I think Brent. we mentioned, we talked about it a little bit. Maybe our evil producer, Gavin, <laughs> cut it to make us look dumber. But I, I thought uh, we mentioned that. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Dude, yeah, that makes me feel good. Just having, like, you know, that cute little Cessna that flies over, just spewing yeah. leaded gas I don't exhaust. know. For some reason, whenever that Cessna flies over, I just get really angry. I get really angry. Anyway, uh, thank you. Or the email, if you'd like to email the show, hit us up at passgas at donutmedia.com. Oh, a special note from our our producer. Uh, we just got the Spotify wrapped numbers, uh, and we have 303 days on the charts. On the charts? And our peak position was number three, That's which amazing. sounds impressive. I don't yeah, understand. Thank, so thank you for all your support. Podcast world. I'm just going to say ever. Yeah. Number three we podcast on three. the planet. Yeah. So. It goes... Uh, Impulsible, <laughs> impulsive, impulsive. Then it goes goop, and then it goes up. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, boys and gals, way to go, donut team. Yeah, we do want to thank all our listeners and fans for sticking with us. We don't really have a, you know, a channel to talk with you guys other than the email. So let us know if you want us to do a little, a couple live shows in 2023. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. I'd oh, love yeah. to do some live yeah. shows for sure. 
Yeah, uh, let us send us a bunch of emails saying you really want to see us do live podcasts so we can show them to the fat cats with all the purse strings, just <laughs> yeah. busy in their glass castle counting all the beans. Yeah, replacing their blood with the blood of younger people. Yeah, making <laughs> kids at 90. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Follow the boys on all social media at James Pumphrey. On TikTok, at, I'm Kentucky Cobra. At James Pumphrey. Uh, at Joji Weber. And follow me at Nolan J. Sykes. Big thank you to our producers this week. The aforementioned Gavin Kinzel and Christina Felski. And as well as our writer this week, Jimmy Pennington. Jimmy Pennington. And with a name like Pennington, it's no wonder the mofo knows so many words. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you next week. Thank you.